Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barakatuh nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Good evening to the, what do they call this? Mood lighting. What kind of mood lighting? Demure? That's a nice word, isn't it? Demure. It's one of my favorite English words. What kind of lighting is this called? Come on, the women will know. This is the all kind of bakwas they spend all day and night in. Yeah, romantic. you don't call it dark, do you? You call it romantic. It's not romantic at all. <laughs> yeah, it's some some some. Yeah, anyway, ah, huh? oh my goodness. So anyway, alhamdulillah. So we are back in Madinatul Munawwara. Sharafahullah, and um, very happy about that as well. Um, what we are going to do today? Yep. Yeah. Get tempted at CMA. Ah, bro, you know what so you forget. Bro, you know, yeah, yeah. so Harun here. Harun, yeah, yeah. So obviously, that's a sunnah of the class, by the way. Actually, to be honest, it's a shock that the rest of the folks here, that are regulars of the class, have not brought the obligatory uh, refreshments and sweets and whatever. Not for me. Not for me. No, no, not for me because I'm a rock. That's the difference. So I'll look at this. I will. No, I'm a rock everywhere, bro. What kind of rock is it if the rock's only rock and cheeto? Why do you think I bought my air fryer, bro? Because I'm a rock. Do you understand? So we'll look at this, we'll imagine, we'll fantasize over it, and we'll say, I will see you on Eid. All right? And I will be making sure that everybody enjoys that. as from the Sunnah of LP. Alhamdulillah. All right. Asking about who the what? The cooker. I'm sure you do, yeah. You, I'm sure you do want to make jollof rice. Let, let, me, let me tell you what you do with your jollof rice. Take it, put it in your pocket like this, okay? You're, you're sitting amongst pilau rice and biryani rice, okay? Do you understand? Is, I, if, listen, if there was Uncle Ben's and white man rice and jollof, I get it. But you're sitting amongst pilau, biryani. Jollof can just take a back seat, bro. Take it, All right. Thank you very much. All right, let's start our lesson today, inshallah. We're going to be, obviously, the ones that are on the road are a bit shorter because we are very late in our countries uh, when we're on the road uh, here. It's uh, 10 past 11 or quarter past 11. Um, the text, folks, so if you click on the link that Shazad has on the portal, today we're going to be on page 28 of Sharh al-Mumtiq. And the text is, mm -hmm, what is the text? Uh, da, 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 da. Where is that? Oh, Ahadu Halawakt, yeah? Right. Ah, okay, great, yeah. So the text that we're covering in Arabic and English, or in Arabic first, is the author says, Imam al Hajawi, alayhi rahmatullah, he says, Yushtaratu li sihatiha shurutun laysa minha idnul imam. Ahaduha alwakt. Wa awanuhu awalu wakti salat al eid, wa akhiruhu akhiru wakti salat al dhuhr. فَإِنْ خَرَجَ وَقْتُهَا قَبْلَ التَّحْرِيمَ صَلُّ ظُهْرَ وَإِلَّا فَجُمُعَ That's the only text that we're going to cover today. Um, the translation of what we just said is, there are a number of conditions for the validity of the Friday prayer, and almost in brackets, the permission of the imam not being one of them. Close brackets, yeah. Firstly, the first condition for the validity of Jum'ah is the time. It starts from the beginning time of the Eid prayer, and finishes 
when the time ends for the dhuhr prayer. If one misses the time before even starting the prayer, he should offer the dhuhr prayer, otherwise he is to pray the Friday prayer. Now, this text um, is the Hanbali position as per the madhab. And we're going to examine it. We're going to see what the rest of the scholars say. And we're going to have some discussion about that. Anyway, Shaykh Al-Tameen, alayhi rahmatullah. He starts off and he says on the page, top of page 28, he goes, our author has said, in giving his commentary, he goes, our author has just said that this beginning time is the beginning time of, uh, uh, it starts from the beginning time of the Eid prayer. Now, put this aside, right? First of all, he makes this comment, which I think I might have mentioned at the end of last week's lesson, saying that it's a kind of irresponsible statement to make if you're studying Islam for the first time, studying fiqh for the first time, because you don't know when does the Eid prayer start. When you're teaching someone something, you can't give reference to something they haven't covered. So if you say that it's beginning time is the beginning of Eid prayer, and you're not covered Eid prayer, and we haven't, by the way, Eid prayer is yet to come, then this doesn't make much logical sense. Sheikh said, kind of making an excuse for the author, he goes that when it comes to chapters of fiqh, you've got to put them in order. Obviously, this is important for us because the class is called logical progression. I mean, it's literally, this is what our class is about. We're now year 12, right? For 12 years, we've been studying fiqh, and we started off in, obviously, the chapter of purification. But the reason that purification comes before worship is for that obvious reason. There is no worship without a state of spiritual and physical purity. Everything, everything has to be done in some kind of uh, way. Clearly, not all the time can you logically differentiate um, order in acts of worship. Like, for example, you know, at what point do you uh, say that fasting is before zakah and zakah is before fasting? Yeah, and if someone, for example, might come into wealth quicker or might be understood to, you know, there's no absolute guaranteed way. It's pretty straightforward when it comes to ritual acts of salah worship that you need purification before it. So that kind of part is, works out quite, quite easily. But then when it comes to the rest, you generally will see right, that they'll go to fasting next, then they'll go to Hajj and Umrah, and then Zakat at the end, or fasting, and then Zakat, and then Hajj and Umrah. Almost like understanding that it's no less of an obligation, no less of a pillar of your identity and required worship. But... The likelihood is that by the time you've collected money, by the time that you've got comfortable taking care of all of the kind of things, Hajj is probably the last thing that you would do. And likewise, Zakat. Zakat is excess wealth, so you need to obviously get yourself to a position of having sufficient wealth before you get to excess wealth, and that will take some time. So there's some kind of common sense parts to it, but it's not absolute, you know, 100% that that is following some kind of logical order. However, you try to do it the best way, and that way you're not then having to keep repeating yourself. So what Sheikh says is that, you know, it's better to give it a time or a, a moment and then to say, make reference to something that doesn't exist in the first place. All right, um, let me just put on the right screen. I haven't got the uh, thingy. Um, so, right. Um, then Sheikh says, all right. So Sheikh is so the author has said that it's a beginning time is from the beginning time of Eid prayer. What do you think the Eid prayer time starts? You've all prayed Eid prayer. Come on, guys. <laughs> I love the timing. What about in summer? What about winter? We can't go by seven or eight, right? 
After shuruq? After shuruq. What do you mean specifically by that? Do you mean the time you pray shuruq? Or are you talking about the act of the shuruq of the shams? Because what does shuruq actually mean? Yani we're talking about... Uh, actually, shuruq is not a technical phrase when it comes to the sun. Right? It, uh, the... the uh, the rising of the sun takes a long time, right? So we were speaking earlier on when we were outside the Rawda. We spoke about Al-Fajr Al-Kathib and Al-Fajr Al-Sadiq. Yeah? Obviously, we've covered this particular chapter in detail in the early, uh, earlier lessons. But when you look at, and obviously you can't do what I'm about to do in my, with my hand because it doesn't make any sense because that's not how the world works, right? But if you imagine that wherever you are on the planet, when you're looking for sunlight, Obviously, everything is in an orbit, right? Everything is rotating. The sun is moving and the, the earth is moving. So the earth is spinning whilst moving. Yeah, so it's spinning and moving. And the sun is all moving. And all of this movement, right, means that because we're spinning, we'll see certain faces of the sun and then the rest not. And because of where you are on the globe, yeah, high latitude, low latitude, at the different types of the year, when that whole circuit is taken, you're going to see the different uh, sunset and sunrise times going to be different. Obviously, being using baby language and just assuming and summarizing a huge subject. The key is this, is that when you are on the side not facing the sun and it's getting closer for you to actually see it, what is it that you see? You don't see the sun, but you see the sign of the sun, right? And that's light. And as it gets closer and closer and closer, it gets brighter and brighter and brighter until you reach that, you know, that, that critical moment when it suddenly appears on the horizon as well. That's the definition of sunrise, right? When you look at your phone and it shows you on your iPhone, sunrise is at um, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, today, I guess it would probably be in Medina. I guess it would be about 6.30 five maybe it's a very short time in medina one of the everybody talks you know very lovingly about the sunrises and sunsets of medina because because that's just incredibly beautiful the skies of medina are unparalleled right i mean you can go to your hawaii's and you can go to the whatever you want to go to they won't touch the purples and the pinks and the, just the madness that you see in the skies of medina um medina obviously being in the arabian peninsula is a very uh, equatorial, uh, not very equatorial, but yani, equatorial means that it's quite in the middle. What that means, and this is actually important for this lesson, actually, I, just, I didn't realize, I think I was going on a tangent, but actually this tangent is part of today's lesson. Um, you know, back in the days, obviously no such thing as, as watches, right? And also, not just not one single thing as a watch, they use the word sa'a to mean an hour, you know, and as-sa'a means the hour, but it was always referring to it in a very general way. So the hour doesn't mean the 60 minutes. It means when that, that time when it all goes to pot. Yeah? And when you're seeing, you know, it will feel like an hour, like in when Allah says, uh, it will feel like the sa'a, uh, uh, meaning a length of time, like it will just be gone that quickly. It's also referring to something a little bit longer than a daqiqa, but it wasn't as you know, what, what, how we time it. Now, why is that important? Because people make the mistake that when they see the word sa'a, 
uh, they, they think it means exactly 60 minutes. And that wasn't the case. In actual fact, what was more the way in the early books of Hadith, as you'll see, is that they, they speak about numbers and divisions. So we're going to be covering a Hadith, maybe, if we get to it, in which Abu Huraira said that, um, indicated that the Jum'ah starts in the sixth hour. Right? He doesn't use the word hour per se, but it's almost like the sixth portion. And when you think about what does that mean, what's the sixth portion, you know immediately that what they're doing is that they're dividing from sunrise until the start of Jum'ah, i.e. the start of Dhuhr, effectively, into six equal parts. And even though they're not spelling that out, they say that it's not done in the first, it's not done in the second, not done in the third, and you're thinking, what's the first, what's the second, what's the third? And we would not normally, our minds would go to an hour. And when you think about it, it's not a mile off, right? So today, Adhan of Dhuhr was 12, 20, 20 was it? 12 something, yeah? And the Fajr one was 5.27, yes? So if you were to, that, that was, sorry, that's the Fajr start time. So if you look at it, actually, if you say half past six to about half past twelve, there's about six hours, yeah? Roughly. But again, don't put it into your head that it's got to be an exact uh, hour. Now, I want you to think, why, how, in fact, could you use such a measure or phrase with people knowing that our Fajr at the moment is what? What, what did we just leave the UK at? Completely forgotten. Seven o'clock was sunrise, yes. Yeah? Isn't it? UK was seven was sunrise. Fajr kicking in around about 5.30 odd. Yeah? And in a two, three months time, that Fajr will be kicking in around half three. Yeah? Sunrise will be at five o'clock. Five, six months later, sunrise is going to be half past eight. Yeah? Fajr starting at seven o'clock. 6.55, that kind of thing. So look at the variation then. So sunrise being at half past eight and sunrise being at five o'clock. Now imagine saying to a person that six hours after sunrise is when your Dhuhr starts or Jum'ah starts. Well, if it's in the, the summertime, that means people are going to be saying, right, let's start at 10 o'clock in the morning, isn't it? Yeah. And if we are talking about the winter time, then that would mean that we're talking like half past two in the afternoon. Now, it doesn't work, which would suggest to you that Medina and its equatorial position on the globe, and that's the same with all equatorial countries, are very stable. They don't have massive swings. So they're unlike being us. And what's us, by the way? UK, Canada, Sweden, Scandinavia, Northern Europe, all because of our northern latitude, because we're high up the globe. So we have this massive variation. Right? Our fasting, for example, those who have been fasting in the recent times, we're knocking it out, finishing at 3.50, yeah? 3.55, 4 o'clock, buzzing, making up all the misfats. And then in a couple of months' time, you're going to be dying at 10 p.m. That's a, that's a swing of what? Six hours? Six hours swing. In these countries, you will not get more than an hour swing, 45 swing, throughout the whole part of the year. So that stability of the system geographically allows for you to say things like in the first, in the second, in the third, because they're going to remain the same basically all the way through. So that's something useful to remember, that the variation is minor. And that's why, that's why, when you see, and a person might say, well, how, can, how is that possible? The Prophet ﷺ knew that this ummah was going to be the ummah, it's going to take over the world, it's going to be practiced in all of its corners and everything. And surely, he would know about the equatorial kind of realities. First of all, why? 
he was the unlettered one, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Didn't go very far at all from the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, I mean, uh, hardly ever. Why would he know about different climes and different, you know, situations? That's a real specific knowledge. That's something that even we go day and night all over the place and reading all this stuff we don't understand. Yeah. What about someone back then? And so, uh, uh, it's not right to say that he knew about the times. The more important things, Allah knew, of course, right? And so. Have we been left with provision? The answer is yes, we have. And you've seen me cover this issue before, and you've seen the hadith of Dajjal before as well, and obviously those who've covered, done fiqh salah, we went into a lot of detail about that. But in the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ warning about the, the coming of Dajjal and what he will do when he arrives, we right at the end of that famous hadith, he said that when the companions said to him, how are we going to pray that day when time breaks down? We don't understand it. We don't, it doesn't make any sense anymore. It's all kind of, you know, like, like what happens in... Sweden, like what happens in the higher Arctic kind of parts where the sunlight is like a couple of hours and then the rest of the whole day is dark. You can't stick it all into two hours, the whole five prayers, can it? Yeah, or can you? And some people do. And they say that no, if the long, some scholars said that as long as there's a day, even if it's a few minutes, then the prayers of the day have to then be stuck into that. The rest of the time can be the prayers of the night. But if there is uh, uh, it's only when there is a complete yani, six months of darkness, wherever that is. What is where, where is that? Is it the Arctic? Yeah, six months darkness, six months light. That's when you start making calculations. Anyway, the point is, there's lots of different opinions, but the hadith of the of the Jal, the Prophet ﷺ said that uh, estimate, work it out, yani, put, 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 put an estimation in. That statement itself indicates that it's not going to be an exact science and you've got the kind of the freedom to be able to use some kind of principles and work out what's going to be best. And so these things are, are approximate. And I, I, I just want you to kind of get a feel for that, right? Anyway, so the Sheikh says that what is the start time of uh, Eid prayer? It is the beginning, uh, it is Shuru. And that is the rising of the sun, the height of, the, the height of a spear. The rising of the sun, I just realized we, what we started and I didn't even finish it because I went bloody around the houses. Yeah, We're talking about the Adhan at 427, which is the Adhan of Bilal, Fajr al-Kadib. And then you've got the real Fajr start of Fajr al-Sadiq. And in the place where you're in an equatorial region like this, number one, and number two, where it's very, very beautiful skies, clear and quite okay from light pollution. Here, the most light polluted place ever. You can't see Fajr come in here at all. But if you go out a little bit, you know, into the desert, you know, 10-15 minutes away, you have to see it, no problem. Here, whatever you're looking at, this could be Fajr right now, you know what I mean? There's so much light outside, how are you going to tell when Fajr starts exactly anyway? So, the, um, uh, at that four, 50, four, uh, half past four, a amount of light appears for those who can see it, but that light, cannot possibly correspond to the closeness of the sun to the horizon. It cannot possibly be daybreak. And you know it because geographically and scientifically you know that's not possible. But secondly, because the light doesn't appear on the horizon where the sun's going to appear, it actually occurs in the middle of the, of the, of the sky. And, and that's what the Prophet said. He did it in his hand. He goes, the, the, the light of the, the false dawn is like this, whereas the light of the true dawn is like that extending across to the horizon from left to right. And that's when you know when the real Fajr starts, because it's literally at the crack of dawn. So you've got black, 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 and then suddenly crack, a crack occurs. That's the beautiful thing about traveling on planes. 
when you see Fajr come in, it's an extraordinary sight because you've got this massive kind of you know, viewing angle and suddenly you see pure darkness and you see literally a line which feels like the sky just cracked open. It's, cra it's, it's, it's crazy. So that is what, that is that moment that the sun is that close to the horizon that the light reached your viewing angle, right? And that's what we call the horizon. And yet it takes another, depending upon where you are on the planet, another hour and a half for the sun to actually get there. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the sun is, so if this is the horizon, here's the sun, and this is the horizon, and while it's coming on its way, as soon as it hit that point right there, right there, the light that's been going all over the place, it suddenly hits the horizon and you see that crack of dawn. And as soon as it gets closer and closer and closer, the light starts getting brighter and brighter and brighter, and then it's brighter and brighter until it breaches the horizon, and then bam, it's like daylight. That is the time that you see on your iPhone. That's sunrise. That's the prohibited time. That's the haram time to pray. And again, depending upon where you are on the planet, on the globe, this whole journey will differ, and the time to get above the horizon also will differ, and then the length of the day will also differ. In Medina, right, like in, in, in England right now, um, many of you LP students obviously will have heard me saying a lot, speaking about the general rough estimate for Fajr time, and how these Fajr estimates um, are very general, but they have some specific kind of applications. So the general rule, the general rule for the world is that Fajr starts about 90 minutes before sunrise. And Aisha starts about 90 minutes after Maghrib. That's your lifetime general rule wherever you are in the world. And you're kind of plus minus in 10 minutes. In the winter right now, we just got out of the winter in the UK, right? It's an hour and 40 minutes is pretty much what the normal standard is. The ge geography is very balanced and stable. The, the skies are very, very dark, and so therefore you don't have the problems what we have in the summer where you can't tell what's going on, right? So uh, you can see that the actual observation, you can actually clearly see the sun at, you know, about an hour and a half before, very clearly the light start. By the way, just so that if you didn't know, because obviously this has already started, this is meant to be the pre-Ramadan uh, uh, Umrah, pre Umrah uh, uh, program, so we've been already speaking about Ramadan and preparation for it. So another one, I've already been asked a couple of times about the timetables, which is weird because actually, normally, this discussion never comes up in the 20 years of the fasting year. It's only in the 10 years when it's corresponding with the summertime, where people become very sensitive to the start time of their fast, that it becomes an issue. Am I an 18 degree person? Am I 17 degrees? Am I 15 degrees? And the like. Obviously, we've moved out of that now. It's amazing actually to think that we got there, that we're in March. I mean, it didn't feel like just yesterday where we were flipping July, June, and we're all dying, right? And now that's not kind of irrelevant. You all remember very well the kind of fights that you are having, yeah? The masjid telling you that the fast starts at half past one in the morning, yeah? And that the Isha starts at half past eleven. So you've got to pray Isha and pray Taraweeh and yani eat and pray a Fajr, which only God knows yani, how that works, at half past one in the morning where it's pitch black outside. Nonsense. And that comes from where? This problem of the solar angle. This degree is referring to an angle. It's called the solar elevation angle. What's it referring to? So if you imagine, this is the, whatever that's called in maths, yeah? What's that called? The axis, is it? When you're doing a degree. 
when you're working out degrees, what's the straight line called? The x, the x axis. So if that's the x axis, and that's the y, and if the it's like that, the sun when it if the sun is here, you can't see anything. Then it gets to here, you can't see anything, and then it gets to here, and that's where now on the horizon against the x axis. Soon as it hits that point where you can see light, bam, that's the solar elevation angle, and it's being calculated from there to there. That's the angle. That makes sense. That's the that's the angle which is being used. And so imagine the people who are saying it's 18 degrees, they'll say it's like that, yeah. And the people who say it's 15, they'll say it's like that. And there are people who say that it's 12 and it's like that. You get my point, yeah. So therefore, the 18 degree folks expect the fajr to start super early because the sun's miles off, yeah. And then it goes. You get my point? And the whole argument is all about, well, who said that the, the, the magic number is 18? Where did you get the evidence from? Or even 15, or even 12, or whatever. And of course, there is no evidence, because the Prophet ﷺ told us to observe. It's meant to be, you're meant to look, see it, and then you go off it. Obviously, we live in a time where we don't watch or observe anything. We do it once, work it out scientifically, confirm the, the game, and then create timetables, and then that's it. We just live this artificial times, living off our iPhones. We don't even look outside where something is happening, not happening, or whatever. So I just want you to be aware of the fact that when you look at a solar elevation angle, that itself, there are people that are now telling us that we need to do, for Ramadan right now, 18 degrees. I'm okay with that. You know why? Because at this time of the year, the difference in time between 18 degrees and 15 degrees in time is maybe about 5-10 minutes. So imagine when we go back now, yeah, the next day is going to be inshallah the start of Ramadan. We're going to get back on Saturday, Sunday we'll start probably. Yeah. I want to say to you that if Fajr on that day is, let's say, uh, start time is uh, uh, 5.20, let's just say 5.20. By the time we get back, this is 5 o'clock. Yeah, probably it's 5 o'clock. That's going to be the end of eating. Yeah? Your suhoor has to end by 5 o'clock. I will tell you now that my guess, and it'd be good if someone's got opportunity to check out on, you know, on the online or whatever, but by 18 degrees method, I reckon that'd be 4.45. And 15 degrees method, I think it will be 5 o'clock. That's just off the top of my head. right? The difference can't be more than half an hour. Maybe even an hour, I doubt that very much, but half an hour, 20 minutes, between 15 and 18. However, in the summertime, in June and July, the difference in time between the, the, the theoretical 18 degree and 15 degree was three hours. Three hours, and therefore they were making us stop eat, stopping eating at half past one in the morning when actually... I agree, it's very difficult to work out when this Fajr will start because there's, there's perpetual twilight throughout the night, yeah? But at least you know for a fact that the sun will rise, yeah? So at least you can see when the sun rises that one team is praying Fajr five hours before the sunrise or four hours before the sunrise and the other team is praying 90 minutes before the sunrise, yeah? And as we said before, there's a general feel for when Fajr is meant to be. And that part of that general feel, 90 odd minutes before the uh, 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 you know, uh, sunrise, feels alright. It's not talking about three hours and four hours. You're thinking, what is that? That like, doesn't even make any sense. Because it's fine if you're trying to, you know, I remember Sheikh Ehlan writing an article once. He said, you know what, I'm going to, he's, a, he's a mathematician, he's a maths genius, mashallah. And he did the maths equation to prove that this opinion was wrong. 
right? This idea of calculated uh, degrees and stuff. He goes, it doesn't make any sense. But he goes, but, 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 but put the, the, the thing. I said to him, Sheikh, you know, I don't understand any of the maths that you're talking about. Put all the maths to the side. I said, just use your logic, right? If you're going to focus on trying to be super accurate on some kind of idea of uh, this theoretical time for the, the, the start of Fajr, it's got to fit with the rest of life as well. So how can it be that you start the Fajr time using this 18 degrees in June, July, and it makes the Fajr start four hours before sunrise? And yet the loss of light in the sky is at half past 11, which is the Isha time. And therefore you're making the entire night, like two hours, and you're making the whole day 22 hours. There's no balance, there's no system, there's no sense behind that either. Especially when, when you look outside at half past one, it's pitch black. Right? Now, if there was light, I mean, if at half past 11, it went pitch black, and at half past one, it became bright, I get the argument. But they're saying, no, we need to estimate, we need to do this, that. Okay, khalas, estimate. And the sunrise is at four o'clock. So, the reason I went into all of that is to explain to you that these figures are normally taken from where? If you actually go back and try to say something interesting, the 18 degree argument and all the people that support that, they're basing that, that number and the times. I don't know exactly, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, there were some uh, Molvis that went out in the UK, found like a dark sky kind of spot. Dark skies means one of those nice places where you can you know, get good uh, viewing. And they went there every single day for a period of time maybe the whole year, I think, and they noted, according to their observation, when the sun, uh, when the Fajr started, and that's how they created the timetable. Like donkeys years ago. I don't think it's been replicated since then. Where did they get that number from to be able to feel confident that this is the actual number? From the Muslim world, from the Muslim countries. I've just shown you right now, in Medina, these numbers work, because it's to this area. If you look at 18 degrees, it's not telling you three hours and four hours before sunrise, it's only an hour, five minutes, hour, ten minutes because of its location on the globe. You try to apply that to a place that is completely separate on the top of you know, high latitude, so far away, it turns into three, four hours. It's not meant to be about numbers. It's meant to be about observation. Anyway, so here's interesting. Oh, there you go. Subhan, look at Usman did an amazing job. What a sick guy. Look at that. 80, right now, Muhammad said in his area on the 11th of March, Look how perfect this is. 18 degrees in my area on the 11th of March, if you use that as a method, Fajr will enter at 4.30. 15 degrees, it will enter at 4.42. So there's literally 12 minutes different. Uh, Usman says in Scotland, Edinburgh, if we use 18 degrees, 5.01. And if we use 15 degrees, 5.23. And if we use 12 degrees, that's 5.44. Because obviously the angle, as it gets smaller, is, is closer the time thing. Now, th that goes to show 20-30 minutes between them, right? In summertime, what do we remember? We remember that they were starting at 1.20, one thing, and the rest of us like at 4 o'clock. Hours. And, it and that's why I thought to myself that, and, and I always say this actually, that these things only become important to Muslims in the summertime. The rest of the year, people don't know or care about solar elevation, degrees, you know, it's only when in the summertime they all become experts. Right? And understand everything, which they absolutely, absolutely have no idea about. So, um, this year, you won't need to worry too much about it. Whatever opinion you follow, you're going to be there, thereabouts. You understand what I'm trying to say? You won't, need, you, need, you won't have the fighting now for the next 10, 20 years. Because the masjid will sell you a time, 
and you're not thinking, Ras, that's like three hours before the other one. Do you know what I mean? You're like, yeah, all right, that's okay, that's 10 minutes, I can take that. So you don't need to worry too much about the, the, the stress to do with that. Right, so he says, Ali uh, Rahmatullah, he goes, um, it is a meter above the horizon. Above the horizon, so once the, once the sun has appeared, if my finger is a sun here, and which well, doesn't work at all, let's use, um, if we use this, okay, as the sun, so if this is the entirety of the sun, this is when it appears, that's sunrise, and that will take how long, depending on where you are here, 10 minutes, watch it tomorrow, okay, you'll see that it's done, and it's above the, it's above the horizon, and you can see bare skin underneath, if you like, yeah, if you can see light underneath, it's off the horizon, then that's what we're talking about, yeah, 10 minutes over there, uh, depending on time of year, 15, 20 minutes maybe, that's why you're told always look at the sunrise time before you start praying your shuruk prayer, your two yani, whatever. Give it about 15 minutes, 12 minutes. This is what you need to give before it clears. And what did the scholars in the old times do? They didn't look at minutes and this and that. They would estimate it in a different way. They say that when the sun, it goes above the horizon by the length of a spear. And the length of a spear is at least a meter. Don't think that it's the massive javelins ones which are three meters long. A normal spear is about a meter in height. So... They want it above this distance to be a meter. Now, it's clear that there's no such thing as a meter. That's like hundreds of thousands of miles above the horizon. And the meter that's being referred to is if you do that whole, you know, put a stick down. You know what I mean? Yeah, you put a stick down and you go like that. So the meter is like a theory, right? It's just basically, it's another way, in a way, another way of saying that it's cleared the horizon. That there's definite clear ground underneath it then that's enough for you to know that the time has started. Sheikh says, why is it that they use this phrase and don't, don't say sunrise? That the sun has actually risen. Why didn't they just stick with that? As a, or, or, the, or the word sunrise, actually, is what he says. Why did the Prophet ﷺ say, uh, why did the companions repeat this, this phrase of it's got to be above the horizon by a meter? And that's because the Prophet ﷺ said that the sun rises between the horns of shaitan between the two horns of shaitan. Bayna qarna shaitan. Yeah? Uh, and, when, and then the hadith as it continues, the hadith is sahih, that when the mushrikeen see this, they fall into prostration. Right? And these are of course the mushrikeen who were pagans, and their whole thing was to basically see the most incredible thing that they can observe, and that's the one that's got to be the most important thing in their life. And we've seen Ibrahim alayhi salam in the Quran, you know, go through that process. This is, yani, rabbi akbar. This has got to be. And then when it goes, you know, no, that, that can't be my Lord. That disappears. And eventually gets to the sun and even that goes. And then he realizes it's got to be something bigger. Mushrikeen are always, yani, keeping it to that kind of a variable. They understand it to be what they can see as something great. Now, what's interesting, as Sheikh says, he goes, now, if you think about it, actually, that's not even what the hadith says. The hadith says that it rises between the horns of shaitan and that the mushrikeen, they, they worship shaitan and that's why you shouldn't be praying at this time. But they don't worship shaitan, they worship the sun, right? They don't think of the devil as a, as a, they don't even believe in the devil, right? And so it's not a person or a thing or an entity, it's the fact that they worship the sun, it's power and the fact that it's come on the scene and that's why, and that's why of course these are the three pagan times. Obviously we, we Brits understand it a lot better than everyone else because the Druid pagan tradition in, in the UK is a long-standing one and all that Stonehenge Bakwas is, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's, 
core center, right? And the three biggest, most magnificent moments of the sun are clearly it's rising, its highest point where it's its most bright and it goes white in color, and then it's leaving the scene, the sunset. And these are the times that they pray, and these are coincidentally, therefore, the times that the Muslims are not allowed to pray. And it is worshipping shaitan because that's what shaitan wants them to do. Shaitan wants them to worship other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So either way, semantically or not, it is the worshipping of shaitan. It's pure uh, shirk. All right. So Sheikh says that, uh, uh, that that's why we need to escape from this period of time. And that's why the companions use, so not Yanis just say lazily, is at sunrise or after sunrise, but this much after sunrise, which is about 10 minutes to a quarter of an hour, the Sheikh says. This was the amount of time that the, the Kuffar would pray during this period of time. That is their salah. Then they would get off and that's it. Um, and, and Sheikh says that, uh, and he goes now off on a, on, a, on, a, on a tangent. Okay, so it's not just me who goes on tangents. All right. He goes off on a tangent and he goes that if you, so therefore what, we, what we're being told by the Prophet is to not copy them in their actions. And specifically here, it's about not copying them in their ibadat, right? In their acts of worship. They're praying then, you can't pray then. But the Prophet ﷺ also actually prohibited us to copy them in their customs as well. And to copy them in their practices as well. And in their habits and their culture as well. And the Prophet ﷺ, he said, he said, uh, actually he said something nice. He goes, and imagine, uh, He goes, but and, and uh, if, if we have, uh, imagine, we've been prohibited from uh, uh, resembling and being similar to the, to the mushrikeen in acts of worship. He goes that, which frankly, no Muslim, right, unless he's completely lost the plot, is going to worship Allah according to the way the mushrikeen, right? He's going to know that I'm a Muslim because for a reason. I follow Allah and His Messenger and Nasa. Never they're going to want to actually do it according to the kuffar, which the whole deen is all about being away from. So he goes, that's actually quite rare and quite whatever. He goes, where are the Muslims going to be caught out? In those areas that are not worship matters. Where the guard is down and then you do end up copying them and following them without even realizing. And he goes, that is the only even more important to be careful of. Because the Prophet ﷺ said, Man minhum. He didn't make it specific to ibadah. He said, whoever resembles a people, then he's from them. Now, this tashabbuh, right, is a difficult phrase to translate perfectly. Resembles, takes as an example, is similar. This is uh, uh, the kind of the feel of the word. When we say that he has a shibh of this person, we mean that he looks like that person, right? From the face. He is like, are you twins? Are you like, you know what I'm trying to say? This is the word, the, the, uh, shabha. The shabha means a person is actually trying to resemble the other person. And that means, you know, that same vibe. It's deeper than just a physical thing. It's a vibe, it's a feel, it's a look, it's an appearance, it's a uniform, it's a designation, and so on. And I want you to listen carefully to this tangent because it's very useful, actually. He goes, this hadith, it has a good chain, it is an authentic hadith, and in commentary to this hadith, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, he said the following, and this uh, book, of course, uh, is one of the most beneficial books that a person can possibly 
have Sheikh Uthameen, Sheikh Uthameen is praising this book and he's saying especially in our current era and he's talking 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 30, 20 years ago is when he's speaking, imagine, right? Now, I mean that book and the scholars to stand up for that whole point is on a whole different level of importance, Qasim, it's like crazy, I mean he's thinking it was so important then, what about now? And this book is called Iqtada' Asratul Mustaqim Li Mukhalat of Ashab al Jahim. He goes that to follow the straight path in difference to the path of hellfire. Right? This is the name of the book. It's a very famous book, it's got lots of different rulings in it. And he said, he goes, if you look at this hadith, whoever resembles a people, then he's from them. He goes that the least thing that can be said about from this hadith, the state of a person that does this is that it is haram. Right? What in bihim. He goes, the least thing that you can say is that if a person was to do this, that he is a he's doing haram. Even though actually, to be honest, if we look at the hadith literally, then the one who does this is a kafir. That's how serious this issue is. The one who resembles a people, he is closer to kufr than not. And it's almost kind of out of desperation, out of kind of laxity, out of kind of our liberal approach that we're kind of saying, you know what, we're not going to go there, but we're going to give you the ruling of haram. But really, you've got to treat it like it's kufr. Alright? Now, this is interesting. Sheikh says, uh, and Sheikh Uthameen says, the zahir, the apparent meaning is that you are kafir. He goes that this hadith, to be honest, the correct opinion, Sheikh Uthameen says that this act is an act which is haram. Okay? It is absolutely no doubt that it is absolutely haram. He goes, he goes, but we've got to understand what does actually resemble mean? How do you define resemble? And for me, actually more important than that, is intention a key player or not? Does a person have to intend to follow the kuffar to fall into that? Or what if a person looks like them or makes the shabbat of them and doesn't intend? Is that okay or not? But these are the two most fundamental key questions. He goes, the answer to that, is that, and this is of course Sheikh Uthameen speaking as his opinion, and the tashabbuh, um, tashabbuh as a noun, as a concept, resembling, is when a person presents himself with the specific characteristics, he goes that um, you present yourself displaying characteristics and unique aspects that are unique to them that nobody shares in it with them such as a certain way of clothing such as a certain way of you know that only for example that the kuffar wear now there's some very easy examples which often just kind of confuse the matter because it's so easy doesn't deal with the real issues the easy example would be the uh, dog collar you know the priest collar yeah they call it dog collar right? no it's called something else can't be called dog collar What's his actual technical phrase? Bow tie. Bow tie. Come on, bro. <laughs> That's a different type of priest. But you know what I mean. Yeah? The black thing with the white in the middle, right? Or the, um, uh, the monk robes, for example. Yeah? With the tassels. Or the... Or the, the, the okay, Fizzer says it is a dog collar. So, um, uh, uh, nobody on the planet wears that. It's super... Yeah, and it's specific, not just to the kuffar, but to the Christians and the Christian priest. person walks around with that, like, that's like, not just only 
Bilal reckons it's a clergy collar, which is being very generous. Yeah? Probably is a clergy collar, to be honest. You can't call the animal scheme priestly and a dog collar. <laughs> Probably is a clergy collar. But um, that's super specific. Like the habit. Habit is the hijab of the nun. Yeah? Now, that's ironic because who was first? It's like the Spider-Man situation. Right? Are we copying her? Are she copying us? Right? Who knows? But the point is, is that in our modern day today, it is very clear when they have that habit and the, the thing rejig and the whatever. Um, maybe cutting your hair like a monk. You know that fry tuck kind of look. Uh, board at the top, board at the sides, and then the line or something? Is that how monks cut? Do monks even have a haircut? Or is that just me and Robin Hood from, from when I was a kid? And it's got fry tuck in my head. I don't know. Anyway. My point is, is that whatever it is that you do that has absolutely no other Sikh turban, that's a good one, right? Because we as Muslims, we have turbans. Turbans is very much part of the, the, uh, the libas and the zay, as we call it, of the Africans and the Ara Arabians, especially in the very harsh desert, sand, this, that kind of thing. The Sikh turban is a very, very specific looking type, whatever. Wearing a qara, for example, qara or whatever it's called. You know that big metal bracelet? Wearing a crucifix, for example, and saying, no, this is fashion. Because it is, right? I mean, a lot of people, a lot of celebrities, they wear a crucifix. They, they don't even identify as Christians. But it's using a fashion accessory. Can we say, I want to be fashionable? When on one certain year, it's in fashion. And the answer is, is with these things, the answer is actually quite easy. It is super specific to the kuffar. If it's not kuffar, and with a, a cross and the like, it probably is kufr, actually. It, it, in fact, it is. I don't know why I'm saying probably. Uh, what would be haram would be, for example, a bow tie, if it can be identified that that, that, that has zero usage or meaning anywhere else on the planet except by the kufar in a certain formal I identify as a kafir through the bow tie Right If that was the case To wear bow ties Would not be kufr It would be haram Because it doesn't have A religious connotation And this is the point Sheikh Uthameen is making He's saying Tashabbuh is not yani, Following a person in their deen It is following them In their specific uniqueness As a kafir To the extent Where he said That if a person was to see you He'd say This must be a kafir Do you understand my point? Right That's basically what, what, an easy method. You might say, well, what if I'm wearing my hat, my topi, and I've got a beard, yeah? And I've got that bow tie. It's clear that I'm not a kafir. So it's, that's not a, a, a way out. We're talking about the thing itself, not how much effort you make to look a Muslim at the same time as looking as a kafir. But the real problem is going to be, what is it that can be argued that is specific to the kuffar, right? It's got to be unique to the kuffar. And... The problem is this, is that we have now become so intertwined as a, uh, as, a, as, a, as a people. We're all born abroad, yeah? And, uh, or most of us are born abroad, I mean. And um, we're citizens. If you ask a person, you identify by the name of the, or by the reality and the identity of the Kafir country. That's how you actually identify, Right? Only if you're completely ignorant do you say I'm British first before I'm Muslim. You say I'm a Muslim Brit or whatever, yeah? Um, and you don't even think twice about 
a blouse or trousers or a shirt or a tie to be something specific to the kuffar. Now, this is a very kind of doubtful area, actually. And the scholars, they are on all sides of the spectrum. You got those that are very, very strict, like, you know, there was a very confident movement against the tie, for example, and anyone who wore the tie is absolute haram, not kufr. And some even said kufr because they said that the root of the tie is the crucifix. And there's some history in there, I can't, I can't remember it now, whatever. And then there was a big study that showed that actually, no, the kufar took it from the Ottomans. Anyone remember that? Anyone read those kind of studies and, and things? And so, um, so on one hand, you've got this very difficult discussion about what actually truly represents the kufar. Like the bow tie is a good example. Can we today say, you know, that if I see a bow tie, I'm thinking kafir, right? And are you saying no, no, because so many Muslims wear it, only because so many Muslims wear it? That's not an argument. That's the argument against it. That's like the argument which is, well, there you go. You see what happened? We took yani, their thing so much that we kind of incorporated it in ourselves. We don't even have our own identity. Now, this is a difficult area. And Sheikh Uthameen, you know, he seems very strict and harsh on this issue, saying that if you know, if you wear, he says it clearly on this, uh, at the bottom of his page, he goes, if you read, uh, uh, he goes, كان يرمز إلى شيء ديني كلباس الرهبان. He goes, it's, it's haram, kufr, in fact, if you are wearing the clothes of a monk, yeah, or a rabbi, or something like that, which is obvious. أو إلى شيء عادي لكن من راه قال هذا كافر بناءنا للباس في هذا حرام. He goes, or even if it was a person who wears something, like a person who does a, uh, what's it called? What's that thing called? Mohawk. Right? Now, think about that. Nobody came with a Mohawk in the Muslim world, I can say that right now. Again, some Kafir 60 kind of, you know, hippie, probably was bored, said, let me do some bakwas, came up with the, the, the Mohawk. Yeah? So that's the starting point. Do you get If that's the starting point, SubhanAllah, it's something which is even too weird for the Muslims to, to adopt. <laughs> that shows that the whole thing's a disaster. That even the Muslims said, you know what it is, I can go many places, but I can't go there, right? So here's the thing. That's like, whenever you see a Mohawk, the last thing you're thinking is a Muslim. Right? Now that is a good argument. That's actually what Sheikh Uthameen could actually have an argument there, that when you see it, you're thinking, yeah, I know he's brown. But he's probably like, you know, apostated when he was one or something. You know, he's a kafir or whatever he is. I don't know what his ethnic situation is. It's, it's super specific. The problem is that life is not as easy as that, is it? Life is not mohawks. Lives are fades, copying a Ronaldo cut, yeah? An Aguero cut, an X, a Beckham kind of cut. Uh, the ladies, when they're wearing their clothes, Essentially, it's not the Muslims that are setting that fashion, even though the Muslim world has tried very much now to create that whole kind of Muslim scene. But ultimately, whatever's on Vogue or Cosmopolitan becomes the fashion move. Now, if they're the fashion leaders of the world and everyone follows them in that, and, and men as well, you know, whether it's skinny jeans one year or whether it's a straight cut or a, a shorter jacket length or a longer jacket length, that's not coming from the Muslim market, is it? Yeah, It's coming from the fashion market, which is ostensibly the kuffar. Is that something specific to the kuffar? It could be argued, yes it is. Because nobody else has that market, nobody else has that thing. Um, or could it be said that this is not something which is linked to kuffar because it's not in of itself got an, a, a worship thing? I can tell you right now, there is no scholar that can deal with this easily. There is no obvious right or wrong answer. There are some, ob there are some obvious 
ways to defend yourself against this, which is to not even enter the area of doubt in the first place and to not even wear these things, no doubt, okay? But I find it difficult. And even Sheikh uh, Uthameen's quite straight black and white approach is kind of lessened on the next page where he says... On, does it have to do with what? You know, you, you say that, right? When is back then, right? So this whole argument about the, the tie, apparently, when I remember reading that study, and I wish someone would actually find out, um, uh, write down if the, uh, the tie... Does someone type into, type into Google uh, tie and Ottoman and uh, tashabbuh or whatever? Someone will come up with it. So um, that was like... I remember that the, the, the distinction was happening in 20s and 30s and 40s. Now, you look at these people like a Saadi and Bin Baz and... If they mean, if we're talking about Saudi scholars and the rest of the world, they've had 30, 40 years of seeing the cross-cultural exchange of the world, Christians, Turkey, whatever, blah, blah. Now, obviously, not to, you mean to the, oh, you mean to the current, so leave the current out for a second. Let's just look at the era. The reason that I even have the guts to dare to question this understanding of Sheikh Uthameen is because I generally have a low-level appreciation for the globalized approach of the Saudi scholars. They live in a bubble as big as bubble can get, right? Even now, arguably. I mean, you guys won't be banned, isn't it? That's the problem. I have to say, otherwise I'm going to die in regret. There was a video that came out one week ago, a certain beloved Muslim prayer leader <laughs> who felt it so, so important to take the mic and explain the rules of a certain country towards displays of another certain country's national identity and condemned it and advised the believers that they should stick to prayer and that they should treat the house of Allah with a sense of sacredness and the like. Forgetting, conveniently, what said prayer leader's country has opened the doors to, and, 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 and. So, anyway. The, um, the point is, the point is that this area generally is a, is a, is a, is a, is a hop hotbed of contradiction because they've, they've kept themselves separate and they created their fiqh around that, their identity around that and the mess that's today is whatever. Now, would you see the same kind of argument in Egypt and Turkey? No. And now the argument of, the, of a country like here, Saudi, for example, on their scholars is that they will say, well, exactly. The reason you don't see that in Egypt and Turkey because they fell. And let's be honest, they've got a strong argument there. Because kufr is as strong in Egypt. Egypt, for example, for those who don't know, is the bed, the seat, and the cradle, and the founding yani, uh, uh, source of all of Arab kufr. Right? Like, you will not find greater secularism. You know when we talk about secularism and then militant secularists, militant atheists, those who sacrifice their lives to, to, to refute Islam. Egypt, that's, that's classic. And then if you want to go towards like more the Asian kind of reality, you won't find anyone more than Turkey. Bro, they banned religion, yeah, and complete. What did I just see? You know that, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, 
Yara Alimeh, Alimeh, that's it. Don't know if the name was coming, yeah? Uh, in Urthrul. You know Halima? Halimeh, I mean, I should say. Uh, Urthrul's wife, yeah? Obviously, everyone became so besotted by her, this great paragon of virtue and X, Y, Z, blah, blah, blah. That's why I always say that when you watch things like that, don't ask too many questions. Just act stupid and enjoy the stupidity. Yeah? They're making shahada and this, that, blah, blah. They couldn't be the least more removed from those folks. But anyway, um, that actress was the, uh, won the Oscar for the, uh, uh, I don't know whether the best film, best actress, whatever, for what? Her position in Ataturk, the, the, the motion movie, right? That's going to be the big release and the big international whatever, whatnot. Um, in Turkey, imagine, right? The biggest kafir of our time. Like, you got kafir, then you got kafir, kafir, yani, you know what I mean? He's a kafir, he's proper kafir. And you got to say that there's a big argument that if you got to sometimes close the doors. This is why one phrase encapsulates the Saudi and Hanbali madhab and their approach to fiqh, which is said the closing the doors to all possible deviation, evil, whatever, whatnot. And however much you hate against them, and there's no doubt that they really mess up in certain things, that's the way that we have to go forward in this stuff, otherwise we're going to lose it all. And if you look at wider society, they've now started to become yani, the proponents of Sadr al because they took that away, celebrated liberal, liberal humanism and liberal democracies for the last 20, 30 years, and they now have realized that it created this whole woke bakwas, yeah? And now that's it. Now they don't, it's, it's gone now, isn't it? Society and world is out of control. You can't say anything, can't do anything. You have the right to be he, she, her, whom, them, blah, penguin, yani, whatever. And you are, you, you can't do anything and nothing. It's like the custom that today, as an alien came to this world, he wouldn't know what that was going on. He wouldn't know what that was going on, right? And the reason why Trump is going to win again, imagine that. Trump, even, even, even legally, how is he possible to stand? Yani? <laughs> the fact that he's going to become president again is actually impossible to imagine. And the only way that it could happen is because of the stupidity of the world that it is. And the people looking at Trump and they say that he represents us. Someone who's willing to speak up against this nonsense. The world going crazy. You know, uh, uh, whatever. We've got to close the doors. We've got to close the doors. Sadr is basically not just the populist vote. It is the key to polling success. It's clear that it has the heart and minds of the people. That they want everything to stop. They want to close that door, close that door. They don't want to give opportunities for abortion. So get rid of all the ideas. They don't want to give the idea of, of mixed curriculum and mixing of identity and whatever. And that's a fantastic yani, uh, winning, election winning uh, policy. So I want to say that even that Sheikh Uthameen, uh, he's like, you know, the Saudis, a lot of people have been frowning upon these people for a long time. Right? They get cussed a lot for being backwards and not understanding and anti-women and this, that, whatever. They all did it with the right intention. And they all did it with, with varying degrees of success. Right? And I was reflecting, subhanAllah, just now, me and Ghassan were in the shop, just uh, waiting in the uh, thingy. I'm telling you that that family in front of us had never been shopping before in their life. <laughs> right? And there's three women and one guy. The guy was useless. The guy was completely useless. But the three women were completely useless as well. No one did anything, didn't put their stuff in their bags, they're standing looking at the items, yani, like, as if they're the first time they've been let out of the desert. Yeah? 
That came afterwards. The thing that I noticed is how much they were whispering to each other. They had the full conversation discussing every item as it's being passed along. And they were speaking really quietly. Right? And I said, SubhanAllah, I've forgotten that that's how women actually are meant to be. Quiet. We don't even think about that. Right? In our culture, to think of a woman's voice like... Yani, you know, if they see, that's why they get bamboozled, yani. When Saudis see, you know, bright colors, loud voices, they're like, what the fish is this? Right? And we are so much entrenched in that as men that we can't even, you know, and it struck me just how quiet the women were in the uh, queue. And so they have been able to retain some kind of aspects of femininity and uh, whatever. Not always to the positive, a lot of the times to the detriment of those women, but, but, but don't miss the wider point that there is clearly a reason and a need to actually go back old school and close some doors again. But I think that horse is bolted anyway. It's bolted because just right now, as Mbalu said, bow tie, that would have been an easy issue 30 years ago. Who the hell is going to wear a bow tie? No, I, whether you're thinking or not, this is the, the, this is a key point. But 30 years ago, bow tie, we would say, of course it's haram, right? Because the, why the hell would the Muslim wear a bow tie? But today she's right. Bow tie, yani, if you're going to go to your, you know, your big do, you're going to wear a bow tie. I've got to say, I have never worn a bow tie, but I probably would. I don't think it's haram. I, I, I find it difficult to say it's haram, a bow tie. I think it's ugly. You've got to have a certain kind of look to pull off a bow tie. But, you know. Can we think about this? About how something can be haram until it isn't? Yeah. And at what point in the process? Does it yeah, flip? Like, who's the guy in the middle that wears it? And he's so, 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 <laughs> so it's interesting you said that because Sabine, I don't know if you know Sabine personally. You know Sabine from our group, yeah? From LP and stuff. So her husband's Augustus. Yeah. He's a convert, right? And... He wears a bow tie. And let me tell you, as someone who spent time with Augustus, I don't know of any person who can pull it off better than him. He's like your classic, yeah, and a distinguished gentleman. You know, it looks perfect on him. Now, is he the guy in the middle? That's how difficult it gets. It's a very convenient way to package the world into, you know, kuffar and whatever. What happens when converts and what happens when communities are mixed and whatever happens when clothes are clothes and whatever and that's why I do not agree with this position at all and I also want to say in my defense that Sheikh Uthameen himself opens the door to a little bit of relaxation and I'll end with this he says um, in the discussion of whether you have to have an intention and Sheikh Uthameen argues that absolutely nothing to do with the intention he goes their illah is to be like them whether you intended it or not which is a very scary proposition He's saying that it doesn't matter if you say, no, man, I'm wearing this jacket because it looks nice. I don't wear this jacket because the kafir is the one who designed it. And we never, I'm wearing this bow tie because it suits me, not because, you know, and that's how we'd all defend ourselves, isn't it? I'm wearing the New Year's black because it's the New Year's black. It's, you know, it's this year's black. It's this year's brown. Not because it's, you know, whatever her name is and Vogue editor told me that this year's black is, you know what I'm trying to say? I'm doing it for that reason. Allah knows my intention. Sheikh Uthameen says there's absolutely no basis for that. Where did you get the idea that the intention will change anything? Once you're in, you're in. Once you've done it, you've done it. He goes, he goes, uh, and he even has to argue against himself. He goes, I mean, uh, he, go, he goes, 
I agree that from the outside it does look like you have to intend this act because the word tashabbah this word tashabbah the root Arabic word is what? Shabaha, correct, yeah. So tashabaha is the vowel form. What vowel form is it? Have a go, it's okay. You, you, go on, it is five. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it is five. But what, uh, what is the actual verb? What is the noun form? It is tafa'ala. Tafa'ala, when it's ap applied to shabaha, it becomes tashabaha. And when you know when you change the vowel, the, the vowel form, the, 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 the verb form, tashabbah indicates intention and action and you know a real kind of you know the Prophet said didn't say man shabbaha or he said man which would indicate that a person is doing it with real intent. And Sheikh Uthameen concedes that as well. He says, he goes. This is tafa'ala, taqdi fi'lan wa qasda. He goes, yeah, the verb, the way that it's presented, it does indicate that a person wanted to do that and intended to do that. Walakin. He goes, however, if you look to the illa, the reason that the action has been prohibited, the sheikh says that it actually means that whenever you see the resemblance, then the job is done. Now, he's made a statement there, I don't agree with him. I think no. It's not simple as that, just because the consequence is the same, it, it, it meant that you intended it, or didn't intend it, but the consequence is what you rule upon. No, I think that intention does matter. Then he tries to cover himself, alayhi rahmatullah, he goes that, and for example, if there was a person who was in a country, now you make of this what you will, because we're going to close with this. If there's a person in a country that, that where there's no kuffar, or very few kuffar, and, and it's one Muslim, sorry, if there's a Muslim in a country, our country, another country, where there's no kuffar, or very few, and he wears something in that, which is the libas of the kuffar, but he didn't know that, that that's the libas of the kuffar in their countries, and he's never been to their countries, but he's seen it here and there, whatever, likes it, and he wears it, in his country, where there are no kuffar, and he has not intended that, here we will say, this is not tashabbuh, because there is no yani, intention or even example to follow. Now, once you've kind of put that kind of statement as a holding kind of statement or a response, you're indicating that you know the, the, the situation is, is... And then he ends and he says, he goes, uh, there are some people that will say, Sheikh, if you say this, then what about all the people who are... All of, you've basically made all of our pilots haram and all of our military haram. And Sheikh says uh, an answer. He goes... Listen, he goes, it's not just Muslims who, it's, just not, it's not just the kuffar who fly planes, and it's not just the kuffar who have rockets. They might have been the first people who made them, but Muslims do it as well. And I'm about to say, well, exactly. So Sheikh Uthameen has tried to defend the fact that all of our pilots wear uniforms that are from countries and companies that have made it a sign of that company. And the military, who are all wearing a uniform, Specific to the Air Force, specific to the Navy, specific to the, the military, the paramilitary, the whatever it is, yeah? Okay? And he's saying, no, but that's specifics and no, that's okay. I don't know. My, my opinion in this is that it is a very dangerous area. We've got to be very careful. But I think that in the nuance, that I think that the benefit of the doubt should be given to the Muslim. I think the situation is far more confused 
than what it could be. But Allah knows best. Any questions, guys? Let's discuss this. Let's take a few online and then that's it. It's done. You see, uh, Hasna says, what about those who wear the turban hijab style? Right. All right. So first of all, I don't know what that, I think I do know what that means. That means basically the ears are uncovered. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's not hijab, obviously. Huh? Okay. African one where the ears is uncovered like this. Yeah, so obviously the hijab is not just the hair, right? The hijab has to cover the neck, has to cover the ears, so they can't be called a turban. So, therefore, any turban hijab is not hijab in the first place, so that's haram anyway. Um, but, whatever. Uh, um, Emma's saying that I've got a great photo of all my boys in bow ties, right? Emma comes from a white, yani, uh, Anglo-Saxon background. Kids are identifiably white uh, Anglo-Saxon. What are we going to say? No bow ties? I find it ridiculous, actually, right? Um, or um, ties, even. Ties is a good example. Weddings, for example. Like, for, for the longest time, whenever I'm that unfortunate to have to go to a wedding, right, I will not be wearing suits, even though all of them are wearing suits. Yeah? I'll be wearing a thobe. But I don't have a problem with a suit. I wear a suit for work. Sometimes I decide not to. But when I decide not to, I'm always intentionally not wanting to, and uh, I always intentionally don't wear a suit, only because I want to cause a bit of trouble. You know, I know that there's going to be a certain judge there that I want to just, you know, just kick up his ass, you know, right? Just, you know, I know you've been giving it some, uh, whatever. Deal with this one then. Let's have you. You know, you do, you do it for these kind of, you know, political reasons just to slap him down. But otherwise, the, 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 the asal, you know, the, 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 the base point is that the, you know, the, the suit is absolutely fine, representing a certain professional standard, nothing more than that. Um, the article does not mention any connection to the Ottomans, but there seems to be no connection to the cross either yet. So the idea that the Muslims had that they said that the tie is kufr and the bow tie is kufr has no basis because the theory that it represents in the way that it ties the, the cross, they found out that it wasn't the case. Uh, but yeah um, Any other questions guys? Do I have anything else? We're going to be going quite soon Oh sugar, we're already over time Khalas Shams, you best be impressed with my restraint Honestly Alright Okay Khalas It's late here Barakallahu feekum Wa jazakumullah khair Inshallah, next week's lesson will be on Wednesday on uh, the normal day and normal time, and it will be the last lesson. <clears throat> it will be the last lesson. And those folks about the fiqh of death, especially those online, it is the last day, or it finishes tonight, or something like that, yeah, or today or tonight. And make sure those that have not heard about it or understood that they get it before it's gone. Barakallahu feekum, jazakumullah khair. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik, ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta wa astaghfirukallahumma wa atubu alaykum wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa